How are we doing this morning? Yeah, did the video get your heart rolling a little bit, thinking about fast car, thinking about some stuff uh, flying around on the road. Um, talking about anxiety and stress this morning, life in the fast lane. This is Labor Day weekend, and for kids, there's a lot of stress and anxiety. For parents, there's a lot of decisions, but mostly happiness, right? Kids go back to school. You got a little bit of structure. You got a little bit of freedom. It's a great thing. During this series, I've been thinking a lot about what stresses me out, what gives me anxiety. And there's a couple things that came to my mind. The first is a home intruder. So laying in bed and you hear something, right? And your heart starts going, your mind's going through, okay, what is all this? What is this? What, is, what could it be? Anybody else? Am I the only one that's like, you hear something and it kind of gets going? The other thing is a fire in the house. So going through, okay, what do we do? How do we get out of the house? Do we have everything ready? Where are the, where's the kid? Where's the wife? All that stuff. All that's going through my mind. So this past week, God decided to give me a fresh new example to see how much progress I've made in my anxiety. Friday night, about 3.45 in the morning, my wife is asleep next to me, our three-year-old's in the bedroom next to me, my mom, who's visiting, uh, she's been here for two weeks. That's another whole other anxiety and stress sermon. She's been here for two whole weeks, and she's sleeping in the other bedroom across from us. You know, we have a smaller house, so the three bedrooms are kind of clumped together. And 3.45 in the morning, I hear, hello? And I get, like, you don't really, like, think about things at 3.45 in the morning. So covers are off. And I dart, like I am looking at both bedrooms and straight to the hallway. Because I know if I get to the end of the hallway where the bedrooms kind of open up into the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, I can see 60% of the house. And so, hello, jump up, run out. Like I don't even think, I don't even think my wife has woken up. Like a second has gone by and I'm ready to go, like fight, fight, or fleet, freeze. I'm ready to fight, like I'm getting this person out of the house. I come to the end of the hallway and I see, okay, there's, I don't see anything. And then all of a sudden my little mother comes out behind me and decides to change gears from intruder to there's smoke coming from underneath the door. And so all of a sudden my mind switches, right? So I'm going from one anxiety to the next. And so we start going around. She's like, there was light on. There was a smoke coming out from underneath the door. I'm going, Okay. Like, being with a mother in your house, a small house, for two weeks is anxiety enough. She decides to amp it up. Like, Parkers don't go halfway. We go all in. And so, after a few seconds, I'm looking around. I'm going, Mom, what are you talking about? How much wine did you have with dinner? (laughs) 3.45 in the morning. What we think happened is she was kind of in that half-sleep phase. Saw stuff going on and dream whatever's happening in her mind saw fire, but instead of like talking to me like she knows me, like, hey, Brian, I think there's a fire in the house, or Joanne, there's a fire in the house, she goes, hello, which signals to me the person in the house does not know me, right? Like, it would have been smart to be like, hey, Brian, we need to get out, but instead the intruder alarm went off in my mind, right? I, I go through all this because when we think about stress and anxiety, there's two main areas that anxiety comes from. The first is the amygdala. This is the area of your brain that responds quickly. Like it's your safety mechanism. You see something in your environment that triggers the amygdala and it sends you into fight, flight, or freeze. 
You don't have time to think about it. Like looking back at this incident, like I probably could have pieced together if I had a few extra moments, a few extra minutes, could have pieced together, okay, that was my mom yelling. But my brain said, no, there's something right now. You need to attend to it. You need to get moving. So 3.45 in the morning, the eyes are wide open. The heart is going. It's like 110 beats per minute. I'm perspiring. I'm ready to go to action, right? And my brain doesn't talk me off the ledge because it says there's danger. Move now. The other pathway that we see anxiety comes from is the cerebral cortex. And this is the thoughts, the images, the imagination that we have. And that kind of set me up for the amygdala response, right? Like all my years of thinking, okay, what if somebody breaks into my home? What do I do? How do I respond? How do I keep everybody safe? How do I know I'm ready? This was put into me by my father, who was always like, hey, you got to be prepared. Always had like a weapon by the nightstand. He was always ready, always ready to go to action. And so that's kind of what I grew up with. And so in my mind, I don't know if it was too much Dateline, too many like, you know, serial killer movies or just my dad, but all of that together prepared me for this moment where I didn't even think about what was happening. I was going for it. And afterwards, I can say, okay, that was kind of foolish. Like that was a bit over the top. I'm ready to go. The cerebral cortex gives us our thoughts, our logic, our sensations, our conscious memory, our planning, and that's our ability to look ahead. And that provides a lot of us anxiety looking ahead into life. And the amygdala takes all our experiences and connects an emotion to them. And then when we experience those things again, we're pre-wired to respond a certain way. And both of these build anxiety or stress in us. There's an interesting book called Rewire Your Anxious Brain that I read a couple weeks ago, thinking about this series. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about it this morning because in the book is kind of a self-assessment of anxiety. You can find these all over the place. Uh, If giving you, taking tests gives you anxiety, I would recommend not doing all the tests. I probably did about six or seven anxiety tests leading up to this message. And uh, I want to read to you a couple questions out of this book, Rewire Your Anxious Brain. These are a series of yes or no questions that happen about 10 or 12 pages into the book. And you're supposed to rate yes or no. Do I experience this? And based on the end result, you can tell kind of how anxious you are. I rehearse potential problem situations in my mind. Yes or no. I often think about situations from the past and consider how they could have gone better. I picture potential problem situations in my mind. I'm very attuned to the tone of people's voices. I think I take people's comments too personally or too seriously. Yes or no. If I know a potential conflict is looming, I spend time considering it. Anybody that's been in a relationship here know like, okay, there's a topic we got to talk about. And for like two weeks, you're thinking, okay, this is coming. I've got to say something. What do you do during those two weeks? How much anxiety is building within you? If you're anything like me, you may rehearse the conversation a number of times. Right? Like anybody else? Like, okay, I'm going to start with this line. I'm going to begin the conversation this way. I'm going to set the mood just right. I'm going to make sure, uh, in this case, my wife has, like, had no traffic on the way home. I'm going to make sure she's got a full meal. The kid's been calm, relaxed, like the perfect scenario. And I'm going to start out this way. And then she's going to respond this way. And then I'm going to say this. And then she'll say this. And it goes back and forth. And we plan out the whole conversation. Anybody else? Just me. No one? Man, I need help. Um, Plan out the whole conversation. The problem is there's one variable in this whole thing. 
my spouse. Like as soon as I get that first sentence out, what comes back to me is never actually what I planned. And the whole thing is gone, right? The whole thing is gone. And all of a sudden, you're no longer like listening to your spouse. You're trying to recover back to the plan. I just want to give you a heads up that it just doesn't work. So if you do that, just cut to the chase, get the conversation going. Don't worry about their part. Only focus on your part. Uh, it's a lot of stress to save right there. Yes or no, we're continuing. I can almost always think of several ways a situation could turn bad. I find that my heart is racing even when there's no obvious reason. When I come to this point in the assessment, I'm going to give you a little context. I've read to you eight questions. By the time I get to the point of I find my heart is racing even when there's no obvious reason, I've answered about 65 yes-no questions. I'm about 10 pages into a series of 14 pages of assessment. And by the time I get to these last two questions, I find that my heart is racing even when there's no obvious reason, and I suddenly can't get my breathing rhythm to feel right, I'm sitting there in my office going, maybe my heart is beating funny. Maybe I am breathing right. Should I breathe slower? Should I breathe faster? Like, if I'm anxious, should I be breathing faster? Should I be, like, going back and forth in my mind, no matter how sound of a state of mind I started this anxiety test in, by the time I got to the end of 80 questions and 14 pages, I felt like I had a full-blown anxiety disorder. Like, it sent me over the edge. I said, I don't know how people take this. And if you've ever paid attention to your breathing, one thing that you'll realize is that as soon as you pay attention to your breathing, your breathing rhythm changes right? So I'm getting inside my head and I'm building this up and I'm feeling very anxious in this moment. A hundred pages later, very grateful to the author for this. A hundred pages later, he tells us this. As you're filling out your worksheet and thinking about the triggers for anxiety, you may experience noticeable levels of rising anxiety simply due to thinking about anxiety. Now, it would have been nice at like page one <laughs> that this would come up at page one but almost 130 pages into the book at this point, he gives this warning. Thinking about anxiety may cause anxiety. David Burns writes a book, When Panic Attacks, and he's got a similar series of questions. Uh, his is a little bit more extensive, a little bit more stress-inducing, but he notes a footnote in one of those assessments. If you have one type of anxiety, there's a good chance you have several others too. So, not only now am I anxious about anxiety, now I'm anxious about the anxieties I don't realize I have. <laughs> and it just keeps building, like it just keeps piling up, and that's the way anxiety works. And this morning I want to just remind us in this room of a couple serious notes. That anxiety and depression are real. I don't know what kind of church tradition you might have come back from or your view of Christianity, but one thing growing up in the tradition that I did, it was almost like if you didn't... If you struggle with anxiety or depression, it's almost like you didn't know the joy of the Lord. Or maybe you weren't Christian enough. Because if you were Christian enough, if you knew God enough, if you had enough of the joy, you would have no anxiety. And there's a balance there, if you track with me. Because what we're going to talk about this morning is actually something that will help your anxiety, help your stress. But the fact that you have anxiety and stress doesn't mean you're a second-level Christian. It doesn't mean you don't know God. It doesn't mean that you're outside of the family of God. It's a very important thing to me because for a long time, I grew up in a tradition where 
if you were depressed, we talked about you like you just needed more faith. And I don't think that's reality. The second thing I want to remind us of, the feelings of anxiety and depression are real. And they're strong and they're painful and they can be disabling. And finally, people who struggle with anxiety should be loved, connected, encouraged, supported, and treated. It's a very serious thing. It's something that almost all of us deal with and something that we all have to address. Regardless of the book that I've read, the five or six I've read, some non-Christian, some Christian, and the Bible that we'll talk about a little bit in the book of Philippians, every recurring theme was that there's something that can be done about anxiety. We're not powerless against it. Something can be done. Oftentimes, in a counseling setting, some opportunities may be to engage that anxiety directly, to approach it head-on in a safe and controlled environment, and then kind of unpack it after the event is over. So one way for me to understand my anxiety about an intruder in a fire is, okay, I've gone through that experience in some form or fashion. Let's talk about it afterwards. Let's dig into why. And let's find ways to heal from it, to grow through it. But Paul, the author we're going to be looking at this morning, he writes to a church in Philippi, modern-day Turkey, that is wrought with division, ethnically, culturally. The government is putting pressure on them. Paul himself has his own religious anxiety as he's moving from Judaism to Christianity. The community is struggling with what faith looks like in their community. And there's two things that Paul points to that helps over and over again, regardless of the anxiety in the book of Philippians that Paul points to. First, our response to God, and secondly, our response to community. Our response to community. In the first week, John mentioned belief precedes behavior. Belief precedes behavior. And this comes up here again. A belief in God's promises, his plans, his purposes cannot be isolated from how we behave. And what we're talking about this morning is the behavior that drives us to community, to the people of God, because belief in God's promises cannot be separated from belonging within God's community. Believing in God cannot be separated from belonging in God's community. They're not mutually exclusive. They belong together. For Paul, you cannot fully experience and know God. can't fully experience and know God without being part of his family, his community. Any spouses here, you can't fully know your spouse until you kind of know the family, right? You kind of get new ideas once you meet the parents, new understanding of who they are. It's similar. We can't fully understand God unless we know his family, the community that we're in. And similarly, we can't have true community unless we have God. Can't have true community unless we have God. I understand that many of us here, including myself, are anxious about people. I'm an introvert. I'm never very comfortable in a lot of social settings. And social anxiety is one of the biggest disorders in America, one of the most common. And it involves a fear of being scrutinized, rejected, of not belonging, not being part of something. And these have a common core. There's some questions that usually come with this. Am I the right person? What does God think of me? What do the people around me think of me? Are these people like me? Do I belong here? Do I belong in the relationships that are around me? I want to let you guys know this morning, no matter how many of these questions that you may carry with you, 
what God thinks of you, what the other people in this room may think of you, what other Christians or non-Christians around you think of you. There's something that I want you to know this morning, that you are here for a purpose, that God wants you here in this moment, that God has something he wants to do in your life, and that you belong here. You belong here. I know that because what Paul tells us. Over and over again, he talks about sharing something with his community. In Christian community, there is commonality. In Christian community, there is commonality. And what do we share in common? We look around this room and we're pretty diverse. Different cultures, different, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different experiences that make us who we are. But somehow, in some way, we're all in this together. And that's a powerful thing. Whether you've come here for the first time and you're just exploring Christianity or you've been in church for 30 years, what we find over and over again is almost everybody who comes to church is asking the same question. If God exists, how do I take a next step with him? How do I get to know him better? So we have a common goal to take a next step with God, to know God better. And we can't do that apart from community. I want to give a, a word directly to the Christian here. As it concerns belonging, we are all in the same boat. Just because you've been a Christian for 30 years doesn't mean you're 30 steps ahead of the person that's just beginning today. Does that make sense? No matter how morally good you are, how amazing you are, how many rules you follow, doesn't mean that somehow you've negotiated the entrance to Christianity, that you've all of a sudden become good enough to be a Christian. Or now God owes you something because you've made this much progress. We are all on equal footing. That's an amazing thing to be at because that means it changes the perspective of those around us. When we're all in this together, we're all starting in the same place in need of God's grace, in need of God's love, in need of what God can do for us. We are all equal. We're all equal. Ephesians, or sorry, Romans 5 says it this way. It's a powerful reminder. While we were still enemies... While we were still enemies, and what that means is while we were still self-centered, selfish, focused on self, doing my own thing, seeing myself as better than others, not in need of God. While we were still enemies of God, he sent his son to die for us, to do something for us that we could not do on our own. And that's what grounds this community, this focus on Christ and what he has done, not necessarily what I have done. And when we get that groundwork laid, that means we can't look at the person next to us and say, well, I've done a lot more than you and you need to come up to where I am. Which means we acknowledge their humanity. We acknowledge that all of us are equal before God. By God's grace, we have relationship with him and we enter into Christian community. Paul states this. If each individual is creating the image of God and is worthy and welcomed into God's family. Worthy and welcome. This morning, you may not deserve to be in God's family. None of us really do. But you are worthy and welcome. You are worthy and welcome here. No matter where you've been or what you've done or who you view yourself today, God is calling you to belong and to believe something new to belong and to believe something new, to respond to him and find your place within his family, to be adopted, to be brought in to a community. Because what God has done, you are welcomed here. This community, when it's operating well, 
is not characterized by enmity, envy, anxiety, division, or even appearance, but is marked by compassion, acceptance, and love. Brene Brown, we've mentioned her last week, but I want to talk a little bit about something that often gets in the way of belonging, and it's shame. Fear of what others view of us, what we've done, whether we're good enough, whether we belong here, whether we're the right person, whether God would accept us. And she says the thing that undoes shame, releases the power of shame, is being seen, heard, and valued. Being seen, heard, and valued. That is the beginning of community. I'm part of a men's group on Tuesday night. It's an awesome group of men. There's about nine of us in it. And each week we come together and talk about our successes and our failures from the week prior. Kind of catch up on the week. And it's an amazing image of what I'm talking about this morning. Because no matter the failures that we've had, no matter the struggles, the problems that we've had, how our marriages are going, how the relationships, our work is going, whatever it may be, every time we do this report, not once have I seen a look of judgment and disgrace on a man's face in that group. It's always been one of empathy, of acceptance, looking, saying, yeah, but I've been there. Man, we're all imperfect. We are not here because we're good enough. It's an amazing image of what God does because each man in that group realizes that we're all on equal playing field, that we all belong together because we're all fundamentally flawed and messed up. We're all in need of God. I say this because community makes theology tangible. Community makes theology tangible. Community makes Christianity more concrete. If you're struggling to know what God looks like, understanding scripture, we can't understand him without being part of community. We can't understand him without being part of community because once we start living the way that God has called us to live, we begin to see God expressed in the people around us. And all of a sudden, theology becomes very real. I've learned more from this men's group than I have reading dozens of books about theology because I see the compassion, the love, and the acceptance that they have based on what God has done in their life. And what that does to me is show me an image of God. It's an amazing picture. Brene Brown writes in her book, Braving the Wilderness, vulnerability is essential to belonging and it's the greatest mark of courage. The challenge is we are so anxious about ourselves and those with whom we are vulnerable that we remove ourselves and therefore lock ourselves into a pattern of anxiety. We remove ourselves and lock ourselves into a pattern of anxiety. Vulnerability is the greatest act of courage and the key to creativity, adaptability, and change. Creativity, adaptability, of change. If you want to see something change in your life, If you want to see kind of your anxiety level change, your faith change, your family change, your relationships change, getting into community and being vulnerable with those people, realizing that, hey, we're all flawed, we all need God, is the greatest pathway to creativity, adaptability, and change. When we get connected, we experience reprieve from our anxiety. Doesn't fix it. It's not a magic wand. But we begin to see God working bringing healing and hope. In short, community reduces anxiety. Community reduces anxiety. Philippians 4, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's one of the most underlined verses. Do not be anxious about anything, 
This is the context to which Paul is writing. His community is so anxious, it's fraught with division and pain and struggle. And in Philippians 1, we see what helps Paul get through it all. We see what helps Paul get through his anxiety. He writes this, Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you. Because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think about all of you this way. Because you hold me in your heart, for all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced a harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. There's a lot of neat stuff in here, but I want to draw attention to just a few things. Paul, over and over again, talks about sharing with one another. They share in the gospel together. They share in God's grace together. They're supporting one another. They're upholding one another. Paul says, you hold me in your heart. I think of you all the time. This is an amazing picture of community. It's kind of seen in my men's group where over and over again throughout the week, we're sending each other a message because we're realizing that if we're trying to do this alone, we're going to fail. Paul knows this, and his response to community lessens his anxiety. So the first thing we have to do is partner. In partnership, there is power. In partnership, there is power. Paul talks about standing side by side with those in Philippi, standing side by side, how they upheld him, gave him strength, helped him to walk through life, even imprisonment. They're sharing needs together. They're holding each other in prayer and they're standing together in compassion. Partnership works best, Philippians 2 says, when each person is looking not to their own interests, but to the interests of others. How important is this for a partnership? Like a partnership doesn't work if you're always thinking, I'm going to get mine, or I need me first. Partnerships begin to break down. It's the same with marriage. The more you think I need to get mine, or it's all about me, or I'm not getting my needs met, all of a sudden that partnership, that marriage begins to break down. And Paul knows this, looking to the interest of the others. Dr. Catherine Pittman, she's a clinical psychologist out of St. Mary's College, argues that the main cause of anxiety are the images and thoughts that consume us. They get inside our head, our images and our thoughts. That's that cerebral cortex again. What she's saying is when we become too focused on ourselves, our lives, our future, our needs, our thoughts become anxious. Too often we fill our lives with me moments. Me moments. What do I want? Where am I going? And Paul is saying there's a radical shift that needs to take place. It takes place through partnership. And the power for change is beginning to look and say, okay, I'm going to think about the other person across from me. And the cool thing is when you start thinking about somebody else's needs, when you start connecting and seeing what God wants to do in somebody else's life, start listening to their story, our anxiety drops because we're not focused on those me moments, what I want, how I'm going to get. God changes something 
relationally that frees us from anxiety. It's an amazing picture. Paul states many different ways. You need to stand together. Don't do this journey alone. If you want to see faith and your uh, relationship with God strengthened, you cannot do that alone. The final comment is you need to participate. You need to participate. It's not enough to partner together, but you need to participate because participation often gets in the way of us actually doing something, of seeing something happen. Have you ever missed out on something? Have you ever missed out on something and been like, man, I really wish I would have done that? So that's pretty much my whole life. I'm not an early adopter. Like, I'm not a risk taker. I'd rather sit on the sidelines and kind of watch everybody else. Like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, if I do that, it could be fun, but people might look at me funny, or maybe just people would look at me like all eyes on stage, like this just makes me really uncomfortable. Um, I'm not an early adopter. I noticed this uh, a couple years ago when I got this job. My boss, the wonderful Pastor John Sly, wanted me to be able to answer emails. And so it was a necessity to move from the flip phone to the smartphone. I love my flip phone dearly. Anybody still rocking the flip phone? All right. I went to trade that in at Verizon and they laughed at me. They said, you'll have to give us $5 to discharge of it. It's worthless to them. But if I could do anything to go back to the flip phone, I would be so happy. Like my anxiety would come down quite a bit. No social media, no emails, just phone. The, the, like the purpose of the phone is to make the call. You got to hit the C three times to get to the letter F if you're texting. It just makes it not worth it. It's an amazing thing. I really wish I could go back. I say all that because I'm not an early adopter. I don't like putting myself out there. I don't like all eyes on me. I, I miss out on a lot of things because I don't participate. I went to undergrad in Tennessee in the Smoky Mountain area. And it was an amazing experience. You know, if you love the outdoors, if you love hiking, this is an amazing place to be. And there's uh, several places where you kind of rock jump. You go up creeks and you jump from rock to rock, try to avoid getting wet until you get to the point where you're like, okay, now we need to jump in. Let's do this. And there's one spot, I believe it's near Cades Cove, and there's about a 20-foot rock that jumps into the water. You can get up, climb up there, and jump straight into this creek. The only problem is it's a creek. Like, at max, it's like five to six feet deep, right? And so we're up there, and all my friends are jumping off this 20-foot rock. And they're having a great time. You know, some of them are coming up a little sore because you you hit bottom. It's only five feet deep, and you're jumping from 20 feet. And everybody's having a great time saying, Brian, you got to do it. Parker, you got to get up there. Do it, Parker. Come on, it's your turn. I'm I'm not doing that. Everybody's crazy. Like, you've got like a four-foot section that you have to land in. And they're getting up there and for the new people, and they did this with me too, they take a rock and they say, okay, watch where the rock lands because where the rock lands is where you want to jump in. Because if you jump too far over here or too far over here, you're going from like five feet to like two feet and it's really going to hurt. It's really going to mess you up. So go where the rock lands. And so I have this buddy and I hope everybody here has a buddy like this. He jumps in. He's done it many times before. And he looks up, he pops up out of the water, big smile on his face. Parker, you're next. Get up on that rock. After some persuading, he pulls me up there. He's like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you where to go, what to do. When you hit the water, jump feet first. When you hit the water, pull your legs up because you want your butt to hit the bottom, not your legs. You want your butt to hit the bottom, not your legs. And so we get up there and he's like, okay, I'm going to jump first. 
And when I come out, I'm going to jump right where you need to go. When I come out, it's going to be your turn. And so he jumps in, has a great time, pops up, smile on his face. I jump in. That is some cold water. <laughs> like Smoky Mountains, it's running off the top of the mountains. It's some cold water. Not only that, like you got to be cognizant enough to know, okay, I'm hitting water now. Pull the legs up. Bop, butt hits the bottom. It doesn't feel good, but you pop up. You put on that smile, right? And everybody's cheering for me. Getting off the sidelines, doing something, trying something new, jumping in is the only way that you can see something in your life change. John said last week, everyone is looking for something to change until it's time to change, until it's time to do something. To experience change, you have to go through change. You have to participate. Uh, my good friend, David Burns, when panic attacks, he's the one that alerted me to all the anxieties I am not yet aware that I'm anxious about. Um, he writes this. You may, may not believe that real change is possible, but if it were, would you want the result? Would you be willing to change your life right now if I could show you how? Imagine that you and I are having a therapy session and there's a magic button on my desk. Anybody familiar with this? Let's see if it works. That was easy. There's a magic button on my desk. If you press the button, all of your problems, all your anxiety would suddenly disappear with absolutely no effort on your part. That was easy. And you'd walk out of today's session feeling wonderful. Would you press the button? The obvious answer is yes. Of course I'd press the button. But many people have the opposite reaction. They're reluctant to press the button even though the suffering is real. They have mixed feelings about change so they cling to the status quo. Traditionally, therapists have called this puzzling phenomenon resistance. It goes on to say over 50% of the people given this option would not press the button. The amazing thing about the Staples Easy Button, uh, reading all the reviews, if you want like a good laugh, read the reviews on the Easy Button. It's like a world changer for some people. But it tags itself as don't stress it, press it. Like that's its whole tagline. Don't stress it, press it. That was easy. And it just makes life easy, right? Like you get something done, it gives you that emotional high. But this morning, are you willing to participate, to press the button, to do something different, to engage change in your life because God wants to do something? And we can experience what God wants to do without doing it in community. Paul states, if you want to see God do something, this is the beginning. And what he talks about in Philippians 1 are the outcome. If you want to see God begin a work in your life and bring it to completion, you have to begin in community. And he promises you won't be standing alone when you do it. That love would take root and grow in your life. And that the knowledge of God would increase. All because of your response to God and response to community. Philippians 4 says, by doing these things, joy and peace begin to guard your heart. Joy and peace begin to guard your heart. This morning, we're having community group signups. We have them in person at this location in Arlington at West Falls Church. And if you're online, instead of the easy button, you can just click trygrace.org slash groups. It's amazing. It's really simple. It's an opportunity to join community. 
We have over 40-some groups looking to invite people into their lives because they get the idea that we can't do this alone and we want to see God change our lives. What I'm challenging you guys to this morning is to participate, to join a group, to find a place where you can feel seen, heard, and valued. Seen, heard, and valued. Find a common purpose here this morning. Whether it's connecting with somebody out of the table in the lobby or online, get connected this morning. I want to encourage you to step off the sidelines and to begin to participate in a way that's going to change your view of God and the relationships around you. As we talk about this fall, this is us and what God wants to do in our relationships. You can't talk about this is us and relationships without actually building relationships. Kind of defeats the purpose. So I'm going to challenge you guys this morning to get connected. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging that sometimes people are scary. Lord, there's a lot of stuff that's going around, a lot of questions about who we are, whether we'll be accepted, whether we belong here. Lord, what happens in community? What conversations are had? And we pray that you would help us to find a place where we can feel seen, heard, and valued. And more importantly, a place where we begin to see you in a tangible and concrete way. Lord, I pray for the experience of everybody here that's going to be joining a group and getting connected, that you would bless the relationships that they're going to be building, the conversations that they're going to have. Lord, and I echo Paul's prayer that the work that you're beginning in their lives by signing up, by connecting, by discussing faith would be brought to completion and they would see the power of God working in their lives. In your name, amen.